Well, hello and welcome to Hammer and Tulip podcast. Uh, it's been a quite a while since we've we've done a, a show, but uh, we've been very much looking forward to to getting on and, and and doing another one. And so tonight we've got a really exciting treat for you. We're going to be discussing things concerning the end times. We're going to be talking about eschatology uh, on this show. Oh yes. So, yeah, so really looking forward to this. Uh, it's a subject that uh, you know you're never gonna, we're never going to get a kind of exhaustive look at this in in our one hour show. So, so be gentle with us; it's not going to be comprehensive. But we do hope to try our best to map out kind of four of the more popular views, four or five of the more popular views. Um, in, during the course of the show really with just an aim to kind of say what these views entail and talk a little bit about some of the strengths of, and weaknesses because yeah i guess the area of eschatology the study of the last things you know the end times is an area where faithful christians can to some degree agree to disagree can't they yeah um and faithful christians have landed on numerous sides of this debate throughout church history so there is a little bit of freedom isn't there in this study of eschatology to do a bit of digging to do some exploring without fear of becoming an out and out heretic so yeah <laughs> I, think, I, think the, I think the heart behind this as well is actually uh I, we would love people to actually people who think i just do you know what? i don't really understand any of it uh it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to be able to actually have a better understanding of it so that yeah. you can go actually now i can understand this I can look into it a bit more and and whichever one you land on or you know or you kind of feel drawn to that that's great but we would just love to be able to have the opportunity to explain it hopefully in a very simple way that gives you a, an appetite to have a better understanding of it because I know in the beginning of the lockdown I would say, you know, I mean, I, I won't let the cat out of the bag just yet. I'll tell you what I think later on. But I had one particular view, but I hadn't really read into it as much. And I thought, well, I don't really understand this as deeply as I'd like to. I need to actually look into this in more. And I actually found myself changing my sort of eschatological view. So, yeah, this is really about let's look at look at it in such a way that we can understand it a bit better. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I hope it's of benefit. And, you know, like you said, Gareth, really, I think uh, my my story's pretty similar um I, I had always kind of i'd always grown up really kind of believing one particular view but not because i'd looked into it myself but more because it was just what i'd heard um and then over the years my position has kind of have cha has changed a number of times yeah but if i'm honest i i've never been a massive student of eschatology um which is a, yeah, you know, it's a, it's sort of a, a bit of a shameful admission, really. Uh, but but you know, I've I've, yeah, I've never really probably given it the, the amount of time I would say have given to the study of, you know, uh, justification by faith alone, all yeah. these kinds of things. Like, um, so I've actually enjoyed during the last two years as you've gone on your journey you've fed some of that stuff to me, which has then caused me to kind of go, hey, you know, actually I could do a bit more reading here. I could do a bit more thinking about the end times. And it's really opened up my eyes. It's fascinating to, stuff, isn't yeah, it? It is really absolutely is mind blowing stuff. You know, sent me on a study of the book of Daniel. And I've, I've really had a renewed vigor 
uh, in my spiritual walk really enjoying the prophetic books of the bible and and looking into bible prophecy and so we hope that this conversation perhaps stimulates you to get into books like revelation and to get into books like daniel um as part of your regular kind of diet of of scriptural reading and and that you enjoy um sort of yeah batting these ideas uh, to and fro and um it certainly has really helped us i think both yeah uh, through definitely. the last two years um it's kept me sane anyway i've really enjoyed it i find I it all fascinating stuff and oh it's brilliant it's brilliant so yeah um so we will discuss some of our journey um as, as we go along but i think to begin with uh, why don't we just give a brief uh, a brief definition of what eschatology is gareth um when we're talking about eschatology what in particular are we talking about uh yeah what are we saying well i think really like the sort of the the name itself eschatology coming from the greek word eschatos as in last and then ology is the study of so it's basically study of the last things the study of end times mm-hmm. so really the, the very word itself is we're looking at the end when christ returns and and the lead up to that and and the, actually the bible says an awful lot about it uh, surprisingly more than we we actually realize yes it and particularly does, it? reading through you know the likes of in ezekiel and and uh, in isaiah and in zechariah and and through daniel obviously and then obviously we look into to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus has a lot to say about it in the Gospels and in 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 one and two Thessalonians and in Revelation. So there's a there's an awful lot woven into Scripture that you know you can almost kind of miss it. Um, but when you start to look at it, you think, wow, there's actually an, there's an awful lot of different parts of the Scripture that are talking about this. And and very often people will, uh, I suppose, they will take a particular interpretation of certain things. Yeah. And actually, the way that you read something in scripture can you know whether you interpret it rightly or wrongly can actually really lead you to a very different conclusion of of uh, an eschatological view so there is a lot in actually having a framework to understand how do we approach certain texts we don't really have the time to get into that but that's as you start to explore it more you'll find that a particular view will will actually you'll read scripture a bit differently naturally because you're and not only that you're gonna be looking at the world around you um yeah. we'll come to that as well i don't want to give too much away but the what's going on in the world around you and and how you the interpretation of scripture with the end times is going to is going to influence you and it's important to say this as well because when we did our theological triage podcast which if you haven't heard is worth a listen we did mention that eschatology is very much a third tier thing. Mm-hmm. So there is room, there is room for error, shall we say, in, in, in the best Absolutely. sense. That yeah. there are, I was just thinking about this as I studied eschatology and I, I was really praying into Lord, please help me to understand this because I really want to find the right one. I want to understand which one it is. And what kind of depressed me was the fact that there are some of the most godly and brilliant people who have studied this for like 40 or 50 years and come to completely different conclusions. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what hope is yeah. there for me? You yeah. know, in like, you know, in like a couple of years trying to understand all these things. But I believe that when we come to God and we humble ourselves, we say, Lord, please help me to understand this. Actually, that mm. pleases him and he's willing to help us to, to understand these things better. So I, think I don't so. think we should be completely overawed by... The brilliant minds that have wrestled with it no and just to kind of like you know 
put the um, put the guy ropes in, so to speak, as we as we try to put the structure of this session together. I think you mentioned a couple of really important things there. Um, it's really important that we start out in the right place when we study eschatology, just like we. You know, just like we'd think about how we were going to begin our study of something like discussing whether the Bible teaches the Trinity or not, right? We would we would map out how we're going to approach that subject. We would decide uh, how we're going to mine for truth in this particular area. And the same is true of eschatology. And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to uh, look at the world around us and look at events that are taking place right now and then come to the Bible and look for those events to be kind of mentioned in the Bible, yeah. spoken of in the Bible. Um, to do that would be to commit eisegesis, would be to read in a sense our own worldview into the scriptures and that's really dangerous that's really dangerous and people have fallen Absolutely. into some really crazy theology when they've tried to do that especially in the area of eschatology you know people have come up with mad ideas about the identity of the antichrist or the the, the date of the return of christ being something that they suddenly know now and so what we must do is we've got to take our lead from scripture whatever our view is about the end times um, we don't want to be looking to the world first and saying right okay i'm seeing x y and z um oh yes i, I think i remember something in zechariah or in second thessalonians about that uh, right yeah okay well there we have it you know that's the view we want to be coming from scripture and working out um, so yeah. that's a really important thing to say first uh, before we do dive in. Um, so I think probably what we'll try and do then uh, in the remaining time that we have is really discuss some of the kind of the main views uh, that Christians have held or that Christians hold currently even about the end times. And there are... <laughs> You know, there are four or five, really. Uh, we could we could probably go further than that, but probably four or five um, common ones that you're likely to kind of encounter uh, in in church. And um, roughly speaking, you know, in no particular order, though those would be. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name them, and then we'll explain yeah, yeah. a little bit about the names. But th those would be um, sort of classical pre-millenarianism okay so that's the <laughs> historic how do you even say it uh, historic oh, pre-millennialism pre-millennialism that's it historic pre-millennialism and then we've got dispensational pre-trib <laughs> I don't even know what that one is so dispensationalism we'll call it um, yeah. which believes uh, something slightly different then we've got um, amillennialism a millennial uh, Gareth, it's just not working for me, mate. You're gonna have a to millennial, say it. A millennialism. <laughs> actually, I got to say this just because it's gonna make me laugh. So I want to say it and see if I can actually. Can I actually say this? Okay, let me try and say it. Dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. <laughs> like, you're not gonna put that into many many conversations, are you? Can you imagine that? Gareth, like, you're, sort of you're gonna have to vouch me. There's tea in this mug. There is tea in this mug, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's. Get, I'm gonna try and carry on. A millennialism, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then post millennialism, right? Yeah. And then 
what we would call preterism. Okay, preterism. That's all right. There's no, there's no L's in preterism. No so. L's in pre- in preterism. <laughs> um, so basically, all these views they are distinguished by the view that they hold about what is known as the millennium. The millennium. Yeah. The millennial reign of Christ, which is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And each of these views kind of intersects at that point, and, and we, they, they're given those names because of a particular position they hold about the millennial reign of Christ. Obviously, our millennialism... Um, R would be a, a sort of a, a negation of that term in Greek. Okay, so essentially meaning no millennium. Uh, however, yep. we'll get to that and we'll see how, you know, a millennialists do believe in the millennial uh, reign of Christ, but they just think it looks slightly different than the other views. So, um, yeah, so those are some of the views we're going to talk about tonight. Um, perhaps a good place to start, Gareth. Perhaps we should start with. Uh, classic premillennialism, shall we? Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's um, get a start off. Classic so, premillennialism. This is a this is a good one. A good one to start with. Okay, so this one uh, up until recently was one that I actually didn't even know existed. Going <laughs> like two years ago, if you'd have told me that, I, I probably would have confused it with the second one we're going to discuss, which is dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, but what? What is classical pre-millennial? Oh, I'm just going to call it um, <laughs> pre-mill, <laughs> pre-mill, classic yeah. pre-mill. Thank you, Gareth, for rescuing me. <laughs> so, what are we talking about when we discuss that? I think, in a nutshell, uh, we're talking about the return of Christ uh, preceding a literal uh, millennium or thousand-year reign on Earth. So that's 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 the main mean, meaning of it. Is that uh, if you had, if you imagine, like kind of a graph. This is the only downside of being on a, on a podcast is we can't start bringing charts out and graphs, um, which are can be quite helpful or not, depending on how you see it. But if you imagine you've got the church age going from left to right, you've got the church age, and then you you have this kind of like rapture return of Christ happening at the same time and then when Christ returns there is a you know there's the return of Christ there's a resurrection of believers first and then we have the millennium that Christ reigns on earth for a thousand years or a very long period of time depending on how you see it but the point is that there's a distinct reigning on earth for a thousand years that millennium after the second coming and then after which there will be the resurrection of unbelievers the judgment and the eternal state outside the heaven or hell so that's mm. where that sort of the lake of fire and, and all of that now the thing which is i think is key to uh to remember about uh, classic premillennialism it's not just that the you know the actual thousand year reign uh after christ returns but also it's also that it takes a much more literal view of eschatology so when we're reading through scripture when we're reading through daniel or revelation Classic premillennialism is actually really taking the the prophecies in Scripture, particularly those in Daniel and it's and you know it's in Zechariah and and and, the, and in Revelation. It's taking it more literally and it's and it's studying these these end times prophecies and saying no, this is actually going to happen in some form. We're going to actually see these things happen. So it's very much more of a literal approach to really reading Scripture and and looking out for certain clues and certain things happening. So. I mean, it is. I find it 
I mean, I find it a very exciting, probably the most exciting of the ones because you're actually reading scripture thinking, God, what looking out for certain things to happen. Um, and I think that's one of the main things that it's got far more uh, attention to detail in that sense. I think one of the cons for classic premillennialism, I think is, at least from what I can tell, is that we, we don't hear any mention from the Lord Jesus himself about his millennial reign on earth. I think that's one of the main arguments. I mean, there'll be, there'll be several others, I'm sure, you know, if you're an expert listening on this, you'll, you'll have a list of things that, you know, that you've, mm. you know, don't, don't agree with. But for me, that's one of the main problems is that Jesus talks about his return, but there's never any mention that he mentions of his thousand year. And I think that's probably the one of the main ones. But I think, generally speaking, classic premillennialism does... It does give you a lot to work with. There's a there's a lot in it. There's a lot of a lot of really respectable scholars uh, who've written commentaries from a premillennial view, uh, and and I think also we got the likes of Charles Haddon Spurgeon and Francis Schaeffer and John Piper, or uh, premillennialists and George Ladd. So it's you know it's quite a, quite a well held view, although it's you know, probably not the most popular. I think a special mention to a certain Irish preacher by the name of Keith Malcolmson that you and I have listened to a lot is a, a pastor of Limerick Church. His YouTube channel is well worth listening to, a fantastic preacher and teacher. He holds to a very sort of strong classic premillennial uh, theology and I've, I've I found his, his teaching so helpful and, mm. and really opened my mind to a lot of things. And I think I found his arguments for premillennialism very, very comprehensive and very convincing. Convincing. So, okay. So, that'd be my take on that. Classic premillennialism basically is a, a kind of a literal rendering of of what's written in Revelation twenty. Then, so that yeah. centres around that. So, we've got um, Revelation twenty talking about uh, an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon. Uh, that serpent of old who's the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up set a seal on him so that he should receive uh, sorry so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while and then we read in verse 4 then I saw the thrones they sat on them and judgment was committed to them then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there we've got the millennial reign of Christ, and preceding that we have Satan um, being bound, Yeah, uh, I believe. So those is that simultaneous? Is that happening at the same time? So Satan's bound during the millennial reign of Christ? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So it's really, it's really kind of taking that as literal. Yeah, sort of taking that literally. That it's it's descriptive rather than allegorical. I think that is the the main distinctive with premillennialism. Okay. Um, and in terms of the times that precede the return of Christ to take up his throne for the for his thousand year reign, um, what does the classical view do with? books like Daniel, you know, that talk really about the run-up to that time in terms of, uh, you know, some some scholars would, would see the book of Daniel as presenting some things that have passed in history yep. between the 7th century BC and running up to the 1st century BC. But equally, some scholars might look at the book of Daniel as presenting some things that are future, uh, perhaps things like 
you know, we talk about Daniel's 70th week, uh, things like that, where, you know, would the classical view sort of incorporate those things as being future events like Daniel's 70th week, the rise of the Antichrist? Um, it, what does it do with that? Do you know? Yes, certainly. I mean, there's there's a lot going on there. I think one of the main things is that Daniel would certainly it would look at the the rise of the of the little horn, for example. Yeah, and it would actually see that as being certain things that are going to happen politically uh, in the end time. So yeah. it would it would describe, for example, when you're reading through Daniel seven and and eight, and when you're reading through uh, those last few verses, it, it's going to describe a lot of things that are haven't happened yet that are going to happen politically. Yeah. In in fact, actually, a a classic premillennial reading wouldn't just be the last six chapters of Daniel, but you actually look at the whole of the book of Daniel as being kind of like a type, kind of a prototype mm. of end times mystery Babylon. In fact, you right, actually okay. look at some of the things that are going on. Let's just say, for example, um, King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, yes. um, which actually, when you see that they all bow down to it, well, obviously in Revelation 13, it talks about they were, the 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 bowing down to the image of the beat of the mark of the beast and take right, bowing to the image okay. of the beast so it's like a foreshadowing so it's like a foreshadowing so actually a premillennialism would actually say no actually the whole of the book of Daniel is actually about end times prophecy yes it happened literally it is the exile of Judah in Babylon and that happened historically but it also is futurist in the fact that the whole book points forward to things that are going to happen in the future and, cert and certain clues to look out for as mm. we move towards the end times so it's very much a classic premillennialism is not just kind of picking certain verses out it's actually taking the whole book as a whole which yeah. is why I personally find it compelling it's interesting yeah view. I think you know obviously um, when we're trying to land on a view what we're using are prophetic books in the Bible and um, you know that we've got to remember that the Bible's made up of, of books that are written in different genres and uh, one of those genres is prophetic writings and you know, there there is a different sort of... <laughs> you have to screw a slightly different brain on sometimes when you're trying to interpret prophetic yeah, writings than if you're reading through Ephesians, you know. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's really key to remember that. You know, we're, we're looking at pictorial language, um, some things, you know, having just worked through a study of Daniel, um, some things are not to be taken literally, whereas other things really are. You know, um, for example, I think it's... Uh, Daniel chapter eight or nine, I think, is the 70 weeks prophecy. And in there, Daniel makes mention of um, the, the prophecy of, of 70 years, which was the amount of time that God had ordained Israel should spend in exile in Babylon. Yeah. That's a literal 70 years. But then when the angel tells him, you know, 70 weeks have been ordained for you, it doesn't literally mean 70 weeks. So it's, re it's yeah. really like quite... Um, it's quite a feat to um, to do, really, interpreting some of this this stuff. But um, I think the classical view essentially has a good go at it, doesn't it? It, it sort of yeah, really it does. does try to say, well, you know, let's not back out of this fight. Let's really try and understand and believe that God intended for us to understand these prophetic books rather than sort of saying, well, you know, it's all pictorial language and, you know, at the end of the day, Jesus is coming back. So, you know, <laughs> it doesn't... It you know, it doesn't submit. It sort of really tries to wrestle with these texts and I really like that for it and I've really... Um, 
I've been encouraged by that to go and read Daniel and read Revelation and you know, pray and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me um, to understand these passages. Because for so many years, I think I've just kind of read them and gone, yeah, you know, um, beasts and weeks and years. And well, it doesn't matter, you know, Jesus is coming back and we all just better be ready. And so um, I think this view has pressed me to, to believe that God does want for his church to understand certain things about the end times and he wants to why does he want us to understand these things to comfort us i think um to bring us comfort uh so yeah so i i do like that about the the historic the classical uh pre-mill view um what i hadn't understood gareth is is how it differed from what we call dispensationalism now yeah. we'll talk about this in a moment dispensationalism um, you might not know the name that it's called, but you'll probably be familiar with some of the things that um, are held to in this view. Uh, this view really uh, centres around, uh, again, a rather literal interpretation of the prophetic scriptures, but equally some added things that aren't found in the classical pre-mill view, uh, one of which being the sort of pre-tribulation rapture of yeah god's people and now that's the key feature that i'm sure you'll kind of twig and to say oh yeah i know this view because many of you will have been uh, will have grown up in the in the 90s uh, around the kind of left behind series um you know perhaps if you're slightly older you listen to or read sorry um how Lindsay's you know late great planet earth and things like that you'll be familiar with some of the tenets of this position but um yeah like there's actually quite a lot to it it's uh, out of all the views it's perhaps the most recent of all of them um, yep. in that this is something that's, uh, yeah, it's very popular, but quite new. Uh, it's kind of 19th century, I think. 19th century, you know, yes. Quite a theological novelty in that sense. You don't get yeah. a lot of, um, you know, church history really talking about no, this, no. this sort of thing. Um, which is never usually a good thing, but no. you know the, there are interesting things to talk yeah. about in this view also that we don't want to just gloss over. So, um, Let's talk dispensationalism, Gareth. Rapture. When yeah. we're talking about the rapture in a dispensational sense, where are we getting that from, and what does it mean? Well, basically, it comes it comes from harpazo to be you know the sort of be snatched away. Harpazo, yes, the, the Greek word, but actually the the, the Latin is 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 a kind of raptura, which means to be snatched away. Okay, and really this this kind of this kind of comes from. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, verse 17 and I believe also 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 um, and it's it's verse 51 uh, sorry verse uh, 50 in a two in a moment a twinkling night last trumpet and oh, yeah. the dead will be raised in perish and we should be changed um, and also this talks about in in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17 it talks about the the sort of be, being taken away being raptured away uh, or meeting meeting Christ in in the sky yeah and this this is really where that that comes from that 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 view that's it's a verse 17 then we who are alive we left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and will always be with the lord so there's this sort of being caught up in the air jesus talks about you know us meeting him in you know he will see the son of man returning on a cloud so there's very much that sort of theme of being caught up with him so that's really the where the idea comes from the whole 
timing thing of, of when that's going to happen in dispensationalism, this is where it gets quite interesting because in dispensationalism, the first thing I have to say about dispensationalism, which is worth understanding, is it's a different view of God's plan of salvation. Right. And that's important to understand because we're now moving away from the classic covenant theology into a different way of, of seeing or understanding God's plan of salvation. So covenant theology is a very simple creation, full redemption, consummation. It's really a very simple map of the story of salvation in, in, in four parts. Whereas dispensation, actually dispensationalism kind of splits it up into, I think it's like seven or eight different dispensations. So it's kind of like, you know, creation and then after, and then like after the fall sin and then up to, you know, up to um, Noah and the, up the Moses and the law and then the prophets. And so it's kind of putting church uh, salvation history into, into chunks. Yeah. And then that gets as far as the as the, we're now in the church age of grace uh, after Christ ascended, and then at, at the end of the church age, there'll be a, a what's known a dispensational change of air commas, and we'll find ourselves in the seven year tribulation. Then, uh, and before the start of the seven year tribulation, the church will be will be you know. So it will be it'll be raptured away, raptura, raptured away, taken up into heaven. And we're going to spend seven years with the Lord in heaven. Um, alternatively, there's another view to that, which is uh, the, the mid-tribulation uh, rapture. Now, the right. idea of, of the mid-tribulation is that's pre-wrath. So there's pre-trib, which is before the tribulation starts, before the Antichrist is revealed and the seven-year tribulation starts. Pre-wrath is you'll be there for three and a half years before God then pours his wrath out onto the earth. Mm. Um, in fact, there's a very interesting film for those who are interested in kind of just exploring this uh, called Before the Wrath. And in this film, it actually talks about how in a Galilean wedding, uh, at the, the husband would, would, would get up in the middle of, of the night to go and get his bride and she'd have to be ready to get up in the middle of the night and she'd be brought into the house and talking about how a Galilean wedding kind of... Um, kind of mirrored this kind of thing of Christ coming for his bride. So right, there's a lot okay. of people who really do hold strongly onto this view of, yeah. of actually us being snatched away, whether that is before the tribulation starts at the beginning of the seven year uh, tribulation period, or whether that's mid tribulation before the wrath of God's poured out, because there is obviously the argument there that will, um, well, God's not going to want to pour his wrath out on his people. Mm. So, you know, so there is, this is, persecution and, and wrath is not to be confused here so that there's a there's a, a catching away either that's for seven years or three and a half years and then Christ will return and reign for th for a thousand years. So we're back to basically classic premill in that sense. So mm. it's it's a bit different from classic premillennialism in, in the fact that we've got this this secret rapture and we've also got this this we got the church age rather than the sort of you know being a certain phase if you like yeah so, so it's it's kind of very much divided up it's a very quite a complicated graft when you if you see people drawing out a chart sorry if you see people drawing out a, tr a chart of dispensationalism uh, it's there's a lot going on 
I think, I mean, actually, before I say anything more, I, I, I saw this hilarious video. This, um, this man, um, he, him and his kids, they basically, they, they, they'd taken all their clothes and shoes off and left them out. So when his wife came home, she thought they'd all been wrapped <laughs> and she'd be left behind. Uh, I don't know how long that guy has been living in the shed for since then because she was so angry with him. But it always made me laugh. The fact, I mean, think like people will actually believe that because they play quite a good practical joke, I suppose. But... Um, really, I mean, have you got any questions before I sort of go on? Is there anything else you want to raise from that? Um, not really, not really. I mean, it's a very, it's it's a very common view, um, isn't it? Really, especially in the United States. Yeah, um, it's quite an American theology, to be yeah. honest with you. I think you yeah. don't hear many sort of Middle Eastern or Eastern kind of churches that are being persecuted saying we're going to be raptured anytime soon do you it's quite an you interesting don't one. and I think obviously you don't find it in the church fathers you don't find no, it really not at all. up until the kind of 19th century mid to late 19th century and you've got you know a couple of guys that um, that begin to kind of think that way and it gets kind of codified I think by Schofield doesn't it in his yeah uh, I mean, I've got to yeah. tell you what I've got. Uh, the problem I have with secret rapture is actually in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. So, that's hardly like something <laughs> secret about that. You would have thought you're tiptoeing about going, shh, quick, come up here. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not that, you know, we're, we're left, we'll be caught up together in the clouds. I just don't think to me mm. that that doesn't sound very secret. No, that's I not. I don't know where... I don't know where they're getting the secret like, bit from, to be honest. That's not really airplane pilots disappearing with no explanation, is it? Is, <laughs> it's not. Know, which, which is what most people think of with the, with the secret rapture, is that kind of left-behind imagery. Um, and, you know, there are there are believe you know there are kind of faithful christian ministers that do that do believe yeah. this um you know john MacArthur being above them uh, sorry being one of them yeah uh, a very good bible teacher um, dl moody and dl moody yes and um you do find that followers of this view hold it rather fanatically at times um, yeah and you don't want to poo-poo this view in front of them that's for sure no. so uh, you know we you know i grew up uh, probably being most familiar with dispensationalism as a view out of all of them, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I think you know there are certain there are certain uh, probably issues for me really in terms of the cons of the view that that would really, I mean, my I'm sure others listening to the show would ha would have a better way of putting this, but sometimes my my concern with dispensationalism is that it 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 doesn't put enough emphasis on on Christ's inauguration of the kingdom um, yeah. when he came. For me, in the Gospels, time and time again, Christ is talking about the kingdom. He's talking about, you know, the kingdom of God is within, the kingdom of God is near at hand. And it doesn't sound like he's talking about something that's going to happen in 3,000 years. You know, um, it yeah. sounds very much like he's talking like, hey, this is now, right? Uh, the inbreaking of the kingdom is now. And so my issue, I think, really with dispensation is that it it puts too much weight on, uh, yeah, n nothing has really happened, actually. We're just waiting, yeah. really, for the rapture. And uh, so I think that's, that's my one issue would just be a kind of, we have to be careful that, you know, we don't put off into the future things that perhaps scripture is saying 
have happened or are now yeah um, so we've got to be wary of that and then i think just obviously the other major criticism that many will have had is often dispensationalism uh, as a as an eschatological view tends to be quite pessimistic um in terms of you know um you know we we we're waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us, basically. Yeah. Uh, we're waiting for Jesus to come and rescue us. And um, in fact, when the view became popular in the late 18th century, sorry, the late 19th century and early 20th, um, that was at the same time as we begin to see massive secularization in the West. And there is, I mean, I, there are people who've written books on this, but there is an argument that says that this actual eschatological view had a hand in that. Yeah, in in that happening, um, that it caused the church to essentially retreat within its four walls and go. Well, things are looking bad out there. Um, yeah, you know, any day now, Jesus could be coming back to rapture us and get us out of this mess. And so I think probably like that might be a con as well. It's just like mm, we have to be careful again that our eschatological view doesn't prevent us from fulfilling Matthew 28 at the Great yeah. Commission and, and going out to the world and make disciples of all nations um, so that those would be my you know my yeah. sort of two cents really I have a couple of as well the issues I have with it is and it's more recently because obviously all that's going on in the world right now I mean it's basically yeah. I often joke with people that you know, if eschatology was football, the pre-millennialists have got the ball at the moment because yeah. everything just seems to be going wrong in the world. And so yeah. it's almost really kind of falls in with that kind of eschatological view. But I think the first thing is lots of people on YouTube um, sharing rapture dreams, which I think to myself, well, I've got absolutely no way of validating a dream. I'm not saying that God can't speak to us in dreams, but yeah. it feels a bit like you've had a dream about, oh, we're going to be raptured. I'm like, well, I'm reading my Bible. Actually, I don't see that happening I don't see, you know, a biblical case for pre-tribulation rapture. So no. there's that. The other, the other problem. There's a second thing. There's three of them I've, that I can think of. The second thing is that my concern is that if you are basically concerned, more concerned about, you know, not going through tribulation, and if you're basing everything on believing that there's going, you're going to be raptured, what happens? when you do have to go through tribulation? What happens yeah. if they're, if you're wrong about there not being a rapture? So like the likes of you and I, we could say, well, do you know what? I don't believe there's a rapture. And let's just say hypothetically there was a rapture. Oh, well, we get raptured and we were wrong. Who cares? Yeah. But if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and you're wrong, then you are preparing yourself to, to you know, just to be whisked away and not to have yeah. to go through tribulation. And you're yeah. going to be really in trouble when, when it comes and, and it doesn't pan out how you expected. And the third thing, which might sound a bit nitpicky, but I just struggle with the idea of people saying you need to get saved because, you know, Jesus is coming to rapture his church very, very soon. And I'm thinking, actually, I need to I need to repent because I'm a sinner and I, I've grieved God and I, and I want to get right with him. Yeah. It's a bit like sort of, oh, you don't want to miss the train. So you better quickly yeah. become a Christian so you can don't miss the train. Do you see what I mean? There well, feels something a bit off about it to me. There's the other interesting thing is that if you're going to say that there's a pre-tribulation rapture and that all of you know basically the church gets taken um gets taken before the tribulation happens then what what happens then is some gymnastics in revelation because yeah you can't then have christians on the earth when the beast is tormenting 
everyone, right? Because yeah. isn't that part of the tribulation, right? Yeah. It's the last, that's Daniel's 70th week. And so what happens is then that it, it becomes a bit tricky because you're reading sort of Revelation 13 and we're talking about, you know, it was granted to him, that is the beast, to make war with the saints to overcome them. Well, how can he make war on them if they're not there? Yeah. You know? um, oh, well, that's the, that's the faithful Jews. Right, but it, it doesn't say that, though. It says the holy ones, right? So we're making then a distinction in what we're reading, I think, anyway, that's, that's really based on an assumption, a pre-existing assumption, assumption that we have that, well, there's not going to be any Christians there because they'll have been raptured at this point. And it says all who dwell on the earth will worship him, all whose names have not been written in the book of, uh, book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Um, so we get this sense of in Revelation and in Daniel as well that there will be saints, there will be holy ones, there will be God's people on the earth at the time of these things happening and that the beast will be given a season of authority and power and dominion over them and that it will be tough. And so my my issue again would just be, well, what do you do with that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so to add to what you said, like the whole Revelation 7 um, verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they've come? I've said, so, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and right. made them white in the blood of the lamb. And another one as well would be from, from Matthew 24, where, where Jesus says, after, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Yes. After the tribulation, you know, that there's, I think that this is this is the issue for me that there's there's too much kind of too many strong bible verses that really would would kind of I would I would argue against yeah that pre-tribulation rapture but that's not to you know to any disrespect to people who believe that but just I find it very difficult to find a biblical argument to support yeah. it yeah and I say it's uh it, it, it does create some interesting kind of... There's some other kind of uh, things that sort of spurt out really from, from eschatology in, in terms of our view of um, the church uh, and, and, and the nation of Israel, uh, how those two groups are then, uh, how they're sort of... Yeah, how they work out throughout time really. And it, we don't really have time to go into depth on all of that. Yeah. Perhaps that's for another... I think we should save that for another episode, but each one of these views might be have a slightly different interpretation of, you know, replacement theology versus, um, you, you know, uh, covenant theology, things like that. So um, that's for another day. But yeah, um, I think you do seem to have to do a little bit of kind of ex exegetical gymnastics to make the Bible say that there's going to be a pre-trib rapture of believers um but there are there i think are it's i think it's i think it's the least convincing to me i think it's the mm. least convincing out of the four yeah i think that would be my view but then again there are there are wiser men than i that, that believe this yeah um, but, absolutely but there we go um let's let's talk about our millennialism which which would be really the kind of the classic reform yeah. view and this this is where probably i have landed by default um for same the yeah. last few years um you know i i do kind of see a lot of strength in the armel armel view that um 
you know as time's gone on I've, I've, I've kind of leaned again towards a kind of a more classic um pre-mill view as well so I'm probably caught between the two camps at the moment yeah. but but our millennialism obviously we've got many many theologians in the reform world that, that believe this you point to um, Martin Lloyd-Jones being one um, or we talk about uh, you know Voddy Bochum basically many many reform um Christians would believe this. It's like um, an all-star cast, isn't it? Like Bavinck and yeah. Bullinger, Augustine Luther, Calvin, Gerhardus Vos, Abraham Kuyper, Burkhoff, Hendrickson. It's just like... And yeah, and these guys were very yeah. strong against there being a literal millennial reign, particularly yeah. Calvin, who wrote, wrote about it quite a lot. And so um, our millennialism, like we said earlier, our millennialism uh, in this title, in in in, the, in its name, is a, is a sort of a, a denial of the literal millennial reign of Christ, uh, meaning yeah. no millennium. Now, it's not entri- entirely true, and, and and our millennial listening to the show would jump down our throat and say, "Well, oh, we, we don't say there's no millennium." So, what is the interpretation then in our millennialism of what Revelation 20 says about this thousand year reign of Christ on the earth with his people. What do they say? That's a good question. I mean, they basically they're saying that the, the amillennialism, that the millennium is now, you know, is that we're living in it. Right. And, and that, you know, this, this, this is the long time, if you like. So it's not like an actual literal thousand years, as it were, but it's mm. a long period of time before Christ ascended into heaven and before he returns. So the basic so figurative. Yes, figurative. We're, this is, we're living in it and the tribulation is actually um, happening all around us. And people would argue, well, you know, Christians in China or whatever and, and the Middle East, yeah. they're already experiencing tribulation that we're, just because we're not in the West. Um, we, you know, that doesn't mean that that isn't happening. So they would very much... Uh, um, see that the church age is the one that we're, we're living in now, facing tribulation and persecution, and waiting for that one main event, the return of Christ, and and if you like the rapture, uh, which really is essentially more of a kind of like a, you know as we were chatting earlier, and I said it's a bit like you know you're, you're you're picking up your girls from school and they run to meet you at the school gate. It's kind of like we meet Christ in the right. air as he's coming down. It's more of a meeting with him, not really actually that we kind of get raptured up into heaven for like you know stay up there for a bit and then whatever come back down. We're actually meeting Christ in the air, um, and really it's it's a. I think it's a very it's a very simple view. It's kind of a view that, in many ways, you would have grown up with it. I certainly would have grown up with it at church. It's very faithful, biblically easy to understand. Yeah, uh, a Sunday school kid could understand it, couldn't they? Yeah. Really, I mean, it's just Christ returns. It's the judgment, and then. Um, you know, we, the eternal state. Uh, mm. So he could, he could arrive at any point, you know, the, the judgment and then heaven and heaven and hell, eternal state. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a solid view. And I, I myself, like I say, it's something that I, I would, would, have, would have been brought up with and believes and, and seen as a classic view. I think I'll be honest with you and I'm starting to kind of let my, show my, 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 what I believe a little bit now. I think the, the kind of struggles I have with amillennialism as I've studied it is at least unless I'm missing something, there doesn't seem to be much engagement with the prophecies in Daniel that we're talking about and revelation and, mm. and the lack of those in, and in real engagement with those visions. It doesn't really seem to sort of uh, really 
that doesn't really come out very much that the sort of detail the prophetic detail that we see mm. in in Daniel Ezekiel Isaiah Zechariah Revelation and I think that's the thing I struggle a bit with with amillennialism is it it feels like everything's kind of just allegorical oh well, it's not actually a literal thing it's it's just more kind of speaking figuratively and you know just more just generally, I suppose it doesn't. It, it's a bit vague and ambiguous. Yeah. From what I can, from from what I can tell, has been the, the thing that I've struggled with with about amillennialism. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I probably see those those pros and cons myself. Really, I think you know it's very. Um, it's a satisfying view in the sense that you know yeah. it, it sort of it makes sense of you know Christ reigning on earth through the church through the you know the work of the holy spirit his kingdom advancing in the earth you know we see that but equally you know there is tribulation there's suffering there's persecution we definitely see that and so there's a satisfaction there and we can uh, we can certainly um yeah we can certainly identify that view with our experience can't we yeah um i think for me um yeah my, my concern would be when we look at the prophecies of daniel you know we just we just worked through um we just worked through a uh, a series actually on on the book of daniel and when i read this uh, book of daniel i see that there are there are prophecies in the book of daniel that have come to pass in history and so there is uh, this prophecy about um a man called antiochus epiphanes that appears in uh, i think it's daniel chapter eight um that's right yeah i think that is anyway yeah so we got daniel chapter seven and daniel chapter eight um and in daniel chapter eight we've we've got a prophecy concerning a ram and a goat okay and this vision essentially is a picture of the ancient empires of Persia, Medo-Persia, and then Greece. Now, both of those empires were future for Daniel. Obviously, of course, for us, they're a long way into ancient history. For him, they were both future. But this prophecy predicts the rise of Alexander the Great. And when you read it, it's insane. You know, it predicts yeah. that he'll die out of time. The death will be untimely. He'll be broken. And then there'll be a division uh, of four divisions, right? Uh, in the go I think it's three, uh, four horns that will rise up in, in its place. Now, that kingdom, once Alexander had died, of course, it was split up into four, wasn't it? And um, out of that sort of four kingdom um a four kingdom kind of division of greece uh, daniel then prophesies that there'll be uh, another little horn that's different to the little horn yeah. of daniel chapter seven that rises up and begins to do things similar to the little horn of daniel chapter seven to, to you know to, to breathe out threats um to to do evil works to exalt himself and actually there was a leader that rose out of one of the four division kingdoms of, of the Grecian Empire, a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes, who 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 really did fulfil the things that are written yeah. in Daniel chapter eight. So 
My point is this, is that there is past prophecy in Daniel. There are things that Daniel prophesied about that were future for him, but are past for us. And when we look at those things, we see how accurately Daniel prophesied them and how very specific those words were. Yes, they were they were prophesied using pictorial language, but that doesn't make them any less accurate. Okay, so very accurately predicted things that were future to him. So why would we then say that prophecies that perhaps have not been fulfilled in Daniel should just be pictorial and and I, I don't buy that I feel like yeah you know I, I feel like there are some things in Daniel that are future um that, that like 2600 years worth as well it's like two two yeah. 2600 years roughly of of prophecy yeah and yeah, things yeah. that have yet to happen now this That's is like right. exactly what this is where I, I struggle with with this sort of a millennial view i think there's too much detail in daniel yeah, that we it takes ignore it at our peril and, really you know speaking from experience it it takes a lot of research and a lot of time to dig into a book like daniel um but the more i have the more i'm convinced that it's not all past history um and i'm not yeah i'm, I'm just not i'm not sold out for that view so i, I feel like there are things that the bible says are going to happen before the return of christ um that haven't happened yet uh, and so yeah. if we're already in the millennial reign of christ now then for me it would seem to suggest that those things have already happened and a lot of scholars will point to you know um 70 AD and we will move on to kind of preterism and, and things like that but they'll try to kind of explain away lots of that's not the best phrase they're not trying to explain it away but they would explain the prophecies found in Daniel often or other places as being fulfilled there in in the first century AD I think for me you know not all will it's fair to say not all a millennials will, will say that um, but I think for me, yeah, I sort of do struggle with um, with kind of making those prophetic books all be past. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's that's. That, I think that would be a would be a, a con if I may proffer that. I still think it's a very yeah. solid view, uh, but each view has its pros and cons. I think we have to understand that. Um, now. I don't know if you've got more to say on our email. You can have your say in a moment, but there is another very popular view now, Gareth. That again, I held for a few years. I've held yeah. basically, Gareth. I've held every view, um, yeah. <laughs> um, albeit very loosely. But another view that I held was post-millennialism. Okay, so post-millennialism. Um, you will have to explain to me how this really differs from Amil, but it does seem to be very popular in um, charismatic churches and is growing in yep. popularity also in, in evangelical, reformed churches. In reformed circles, yeah. In reformed big, circles. Big in reformed circles. Post-mill is, well. is now very yeah. popular. Um, and I think I'm right in saying this is perhaps the most sort of optimistic view yeah. of all. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, tell me, tell me what this is all about then. I mean, for me, post-millennialism, if it's true, is just just a lovely idea if it's true. Like, I mean, it's just such, it's the best in theory out of all of them. Like, this is Christ reigning from heaven now over a victorious and growing kingdom on earth. It's that mm. uh, post-millennialism is very optimistic about evangelism and mm. the impact of evangelism. I mean, as ministers, wouldn't we just love that? That Amen. to actually see the preaching and, and 
and that the kingdom is growing powerfully and increasing in peace in the world uh, and gospel success. A great revival in the nations. So the days when, I mean, I was just reading a, another book about the heritage of Anglican theology and, and reading about, you know, what this nation was like during Henry VIII and Elizabeth I or whatever, and that during the sort of Tudor era and how Christian the nation really was and how they argued and had wars over, you know, over, over, details of Christianity like it was such a big deal like well wow this was a nation where people took God and their and their worship and their theology deadly seriously yeah and you look at it now and it's just sort of no one really cares and even yeah. Christians are just throwing out you know the doctrine for the latest false teaching whatever but this is really imagining a time where 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 people that the nation is is Come back to God in a big way, and that's really where I think post-millennialism is going. Is it's it's kind of you know our nation, our world, where where nations are, be are becoming Christian again, and and there's actually mm. a, a positive mm. transformation, a, a visible Christian transformation in society. Mm. It's not a utopia. That's important to make the point, but it's right. it's it's optimistic about the transformation of society. It's saying we will see uh, a, in a, an on onward march of the gospel so amen really if you're looking at a chart as it were if you're imagining a, char a chart post-millennialism is very similar to amillennialism but it's different in that after the church age it's like things get better so there's a a, a sort of a, a an, an incredible peace and gospel success uh, you know it's like that arrow goes upwards it's kind of like things get better before christ returns so when christ returns then comes the judgment and you know obviously that the eternal state heaven and hell forever and and you know the, the, the eternal state now at the beginning i said to you that i think that what's going on in the world around us does affect our eschatology. And I said that very deliberately because of what I'm about to say now with regards to post-millennialism. Now, some of its main adherents of post-millennialism are the likes of William Perkins, Matthew Henry, Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, B.B. Warfield, Gresham Machen, and John Murray. Now, the reason I wow. say that, that I think, you know, that our times affect our eschatology is because, and I may be wrong on this, you know, and do tell me or, or send us a message if I am, but I have my own theory that during the time of the Puritans and the likes of Jonathan Edwards, they were active during times of great revivals and they were seeing God move in real power. Mm. And and perhaps some of those in the century afterwards were very much influenced by the writings of these men, no doubt as well. And I may be wrong on this, but this is just the theory I had, but it could well be that they were affected by seeing this great revival in their times and, mm. and so naturally thought well actually uh, we but because we're seeing these great things happen in our time how much greater will these revivals be you know as, as, as people kind of jokingly say it would have been easy to be a post-millennialist in in the 19th 18th 19th century you know yeah whereas now it's kind of a lot of people now are kind of pre-millennialists because everything looks dreadful out there and you <laughs> yeah. know just think well golly i, I just <laughs> so i think to a degree we are we are affected by the world we live in i think that that's inevitable with eschatology at least that's my view i think so. um yeah. and I, I think we are influenced by what's going on around us i think one of the you know the main pro with um 
post-millennialism, I think it's it's so optimistic and uplifting. You can't yeah, kind of yeah. study it without feel feel deeply encouraged mm. and a, a sense of longing. Uh, you know, who wouldn't want to see a great move of God, and who Amen. wouldn't want to believe that actually the sort of things that the likes of Jonathan Edwards saw and, and John Owen saw that we wouldn't just love to see that again. So I think, yeah, I love the idea. What a wonderful uh, idea and would love it to be true. But I think the cons for me, whilst it's a really lovely idea, I, I just think the description that the Lord Jesus gives us of lawlessness increasing and the, the times in the end times, I think it's pretty a clear picture. I think the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 particularly talked about in the last yeah. days, people will be lovers of self, money, unholy, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I just, for me, if I look at what Scripture says about the end times, I see a very dark picture, not a, a bright picture. So yeah. I say that very much along the lines of, I would really love post-millennialism to be true and I'd love my myself to be wrong on this, but I just, with a heavy heart, I just, I don't see post-millennialism really in, in what the scripture teaches about the last days. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, wasn't it? I think um, we see... Um, this is the tricky thing I think with eschatology is that we do see a sense in which the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is advancing you know yeah. Christ through his Holy Spirit in his church is is advancing and we are seeing many come to Christ and you know the world is greatly more Christianized than it was 400 years ago even but at the same time the Bible does teach you know that for a time will come when they not endure sound doctrine according to their own desires um, they will have itching ears they'll heap up for themselves teachers you know uh, turn their ears away from the truth uh, be turned aside to fables and we see this time and time again this idea of a kind of a great falling away that's that's yeah. future um, now I, I would say that yeah you know um, I'm drawn to post mill because Again, it's a view that is rooted in scripture. I, you know, I really, um, I'm really drawn to it because it excites me, and I think it, you know we want to be encouraged in these times that um, that God is still moving in the earth. God is still working out His purposes amongst His people. You know, so I'm encouraged and, and drawn to it in that sense. I think, um, yeah, perhaps the cons would just be um, that I think this was an easier view to hold in. You know, in the mid 2010s, you know when yeah. <laughs> when things yeah. just seem to be just so comfortable and wonderful in there, um, and uh, yeah, I think it's. It, I also think some sometimes it's kind of it's like the comfortable view to hold when you don't really want to look at the negative, yeah, <laughs> sort of predictions of scripture about what's to come, um, but you know. At the end of the day, I, th I think, like you say, we're all prone to, uh, you know, to using the times that we live in to interpret scripture to, to one degree or another. We try to yeah. we try to sort of militate against that, but uh, but we struggle, you know, without the, the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, I am drawn to it, but but I, I, I agree with you. I think what do you do with those texts that seem to say actually um, things are actually going to get worse in a sense and yeah. I think the A mill view sort of brings that in more the A, the a mill view is similar but less cheery in some senses isn't it yeah so. and I think something about a lot of I mean those who are who who adherents of A mill would actually point out to us at this point well actually 
that view of eschatology doesn't actually really isn't really affected by what's going on in the world really at all. Mm-hmm. It just lands on well, this is this is it, and this is why I think actually is a very favourable view in many ways because you know positive or negative is kind of pre mill post mill, whereas kind of like well actually just. Amil doesn't make yeah, any difference yeah. what's going on does it yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just this is it, like, it. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. my criticism again you know is not to go into that again but my criticism yeah. again is that sort of I often say about people at Amil there is a tendency of being a bit of a sort of like you know having your head in the sand a bit yeah. and it's almost yeah. a kind of if if the if the dispensationalists are just basically reading the newspaper too much then you know the, the Amil yeah, never picks up the newspaper don't pick it up at all yeah <laughs> don't pick up the newspaper <laughs> at all do they yeah. And then, you know, I think with eschatology, you know, reading these prophetic books and the, the, the strength of some of the kind of pre-mill views is that you you are on guard. In yeah. a sense, you are on guard. You, you, you're sort of, uh, you're readying yourself in a sense. So I do I think, so, yeah. I think um, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. But uh, yeah, I, you know, another solid view post-mill um, which uh, which you should read more into. I think that the final one we'll talk about briefly would be preterism. Now that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Now there's two kinds of preterism. Um, there's there's a full preterism and there's a partial preterism. Now this this word preterism essentially is kind of coming from the Latin, which means kind of before, doesn't it? So we're yeah. talking about uh, a view. Um, if we're talking about full preterism, a uh, f- full preteristic view would be a view that all Bible prophecy is past. So yeah. every prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled. It's not speaking to us about anything that's future for us. Yeah. Um, a partial preterist view would be, say, that the, the large majority, um, or at least more than not uh, of Bible prophecy is past and that there's only some bits that that are remaining future. Uh, But, you know, I think in terms of today, let's talk about kind of full preterism because I think with, with, with partial, um, you know, there, there are, there are people I know who are kind of partial preterists, but actually have a kind of more um, pre-mill view of the end times, if that makes sense. So you you can kind of like, cut and paste yeah, antichrist and yeah, great tribulation yeah, yeah. no judgment day or whatever they, or day of so they yeah. were, you know that was an understandable position to hold i know others that would say um they're partial preterists but they have a post-millennial view of uh, the end times but if we're talking about full preterism um really we're saying that everything in the bible prophecy wise yeah. is already fulfilled now um gareth can you speak to that a little bit in terms of what the implications might be and how how is it that somebody could say that like what what would they do with the book of revelation well i think really with the with the book of revelation they would point to events that were happening in a, in the right at the beginning of the first century they would say that these were really speaking to people at that time that the the, the sort of very sort of historical i suppose view of you know that the 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 in the revelation 13 they're talking about nero i suppose rather than actually the antichrist okay so there's much more of a kind of focus on this has happened in the past they'd also talk about ad 70 as being you know when the jewish temple was destroyed as jesus prophesied they would say that's basically it all landed on ad 70 that is basically 
the end of, of where the prophecy landed. So the implications of this are, I think, quite dangerous. We see quite a lot of this in the, in the NAR circles, New Apostolic Reformation circles, this idea that, well, biblical eschatology is kind of passed and now we are basically ushering in everything that we do right now is ushering in um, Christ's return. So a preterist view can kind of lead us to sort of take events into our own hand. It's almost like the, the, the bio, like biblical eschatology is kind of finished in that sense. You know, it, it stops at AD 70. So you and I now that we've kind of got a, almost a free hand to bring in um, Christ's return, which I think is okay. extremely, not only unbiblical, but very dangerous. Right. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, to... The, the sort of partial preterist view i've heard i've heard some talk about this a bit and, and the heart behind it really is to reconcile some of the things that jesus says in his kind of his as we call it the olivet discourse yeah you know, and he says you know um all of essentially all these things are going to happen before this generation passes away and so you know there are there are you know, there are sort of scholars that have said, atheist scholars that have said, well, Jesus is just wrong because yeah. that generation did pass away and this thing still hasn't happened. And so the preterist will say, well, it has happened. Look at AD 70, yeah. you know, and therefore that's what Jesus meant, the entirety of what he was saying. So you can see um, that there's some, you know, certainly I think that there are many, there are biblical prophecies that, that, that do relate specifically to AD 70 and the destruction yeah. of Jerusalem. Um, but I think it's how much of the prophecies in the Bible relate to that. And, um, you know, can we, can we boldly proclaim that the book of revelation is all, uh, past, you know, uh, I would say that's dangerous. I would say that's actually a dangerous view to say that the, yeah. the prophetic books of the Bible have nothing to say to us um, in this day and age. Um, I think that, yeah, that for me would be a dodgy view. Uh, but <laughs> partial yeah. preterism being slightly different. Yeah, it's, um, it is quite different. I mean, it's, it, it's the, yeah, the, it, it kind of, it does leave room for the, the, the main end times um, so I think, you know, partial preterism, much more on the orthodox side of things, was preterism, I yeah. would really not, personally, I, I wouldn't really think that lands in, in orthodoxy. Mm. Mm. Full preterism was that? Yeah, full preterism. Yeah. No. Yes. No. Yeah. So I think, <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, you know, whatever views you hold to on eschatology, um, it's important to try and drive those views from scripture as best you can. And um, discussion is always good. You know, like I think for us, just having yeah. the conversations about the end times has been so helpful for us. Uh, iron sharpens iron, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think as Christians, we should be scared to do this. I think it's something we want to we want to encourage healthy dialogue in and not be too dogmatic uh, about these things. As we talked about in our, um, you know, theological triage session, this is an issue that we can have fun in studying uh, rather yeah, than being is. really dogmatic on it. And so I would encourage that. And I would encourage us, you know, at, at this time really to, to dig into the prophetic scriptures, pray as you're reading them, you know, for God to kind of open your heart and eyes to those scriptures rather than as what I did before, which is just kind of more of a hands-off approach and just look to outsource 
my eschatology to somebody cleverer than me yeah so, same same here it's very easy to do isn't it and so yeah it is. Uh, but but i think yeah it's, there's a lot to be said for um really submitting to the word of god on this and and just praying it through as you read these passages and read daniel you know there's just some nut stuff in there that it blew my socks off and so this is a journey that i'm still on and I know that Gareth is too. We're both, um, you know, just trying to to really seek God's voice on on this subject and be built up and encouraged by it. You know, so we hope um, that some of this discussions prove useful. You know, tonight. Yeah, and we did say we'd we'd sort of sh- share what we what we thought in terms of our position. We did we? say that, Gareth. Yeah, yeah, we said we'd come clean. But come on, Gareth, you first. Well, so I was always very much a millennialist but I would call myself a lazy a millennialist because I hadn't really kind of like (laughs) dug deep into it I just kind of that was just the classic view I found myself and I do now lean very much um classic pre-millennialist yeah um I I will say uh, I left it to the end there's just one thing about dispensationalism that I think has a bit of uh possibility plausibility is is the seven year tribulation i i I think there's something i'm drawn to Mm, mm. there being a seven year uh tribulation period Mm. i think that could possibly be the case so i'd say classic pre-mill um with the seven year tribulation i would and that's pretty much where uh i found myself but at the same time i've got i've got a real sympathy with with the uh an affinity with the amil as well because i think that's a you know that's you know, all the reformers held that view and I used to, so I still kind of have a, a, a sympathy for it as well. Yeah. I think for me, um, still very much a work in progress. I think, uh, my views have, have shifted over the years, um, as I've mentioned already. And I think more recently going back to about sort of 2018 through 2020, I would have been probably like a partial preterist with yeah. a kind of post, mill outlook on things um i think now i have probably moved in the direction of uh a mill and then more recently as i've you know come into contact obviously with your journey and then been listening to certain people keith malcolmson amongst others i'd say probably you know i'm starting to to lean also in the sense of their their you know taking biblical prophecy um, more seriously, reading yeah. through the book of Daniel and, and and seeing things that I am am now sort of largely convinced some of those things are future, um, and seeing the rise of you know like a one world government, um, seeing the rise of, yeah, of Antichrist yeah. at the end times, and and I am convinced that that the Bible, sorry, no, I'm convinced personally that 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 the, there is a there is a reason to believe in a seven year. Uh, sort of a, a period there at the end of uh, tribulation and um, and what have you. So mine's a kind of a bit of a, a hodgepodge view at the moment. <laughs> so yeah. I haven't really landed, but I would say um, for me, I'm hovering over um, a classic pre-mill and I'm hovering over a mill and I'm just trying to sort of reconcile, but then I'm also seeing the seven year period at the end there. Um, so yeah, I guess for me i i can't really come down on the side uh, no. of one but i would say i'm i'm certainly seeing a lot of strength in the in the classic pre-mill um uh, and i'm seeing um yeah that it that it takes it takes certain scriptures 
to task and really tries yeah. to he does it tries to do a good hearty job of interpreting interpreting them so i like that and and so i am drawn towards that um yeah i guess my concern is is with the millennium really and you know um revelation 20 and um yeah did, did jesus talk about that is that what jesus said was going to happen and i think that's my, my, yeah. my drawback really um, you, yeah it's exa- i'm exactly the same i think that's one of the ones in the back of my mind i'm thinking yeah but that's just the only one that's a bit sort of yeah and obviously not quite sure how how that works sort of thing, yeah but. i think this yeah so those those are my thoughts and the emphasis of the advancing of the kingdom now as well which i you know believe that we're seeing that the holy spirit is working in the church um but yeah i'm drawn towards the those two really classic pre-mill and and a-mill are two that i'm sort of hovering over right now so it's probably me um gonna be another few years just working that one through but um yeah just for just before we close as well i'll just quickly get in this book that i think a couple of recommendations for people who want to read into this um this is only a little book it's a thin little book but it's brilliant it's the first book i read kind of really when i just wanted to get into all the different views and it's called Jesus Wins the Good News of the End Times it's by Dayton Hartman that's Dayton spelt D-A-Y-T-O-N Dayton Hartman on Lexham Press we'll we'll mm. put a link in there but this what's so good about this little book is it explains the views um, really really clearly but also in the back it gives you some further reading so if you find a particular view this I want to read up on Post Mill for example it's got like a load of books that you can actually go and go dig in deep another thing if you have an ES study Bible, which if you haven't, you need to get one. Um, but if you have an ESV study Bible, I also recommend the, the notes at the beginning of Revelation, which are very good at explaining the different views with charts in a very easy to understand way. So just oh, a excellent. heads up, if you've got an ESV study Bible, get into the notes at the beginning of Revelation and, and you'll be able to look at charts that can actually, you can actually see what this looks like visually. And it, that, that does help as well. But we hope that's been excellent. helpful to you. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we, we do hope that conversation has been a benefit, you know, so we've, we've really enjoyed this journey um, and, you know, encourage you to, to get on it as well. And, and uh, yeah, start having some some conversations about the end times with your friends as well. So we're going to park it there. I think already we've talked ourselves into another couple of episodes um, <laughs> in this session. It's looking like it. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to get ourselves in more hot water, talk about Israel and, and the church oh, and all yeah. of that. So, uh, yeah, perhaps that's something we need to start swatting up on now, Gareth. But, uh, yeah, we thank you for joining us. And, and as ever, you know, if you like what you hear, please do um, subscribe to the podcast. Um, um, please do give us a, a little rating as well. Write us a review if you've got the time. Always really appreciate that and helps to get the message out to other Christians who are really hungry to feed their heart and mind on the truth of God's word. So until next time, we just want to say God bless you and thanks for tuning in and we'll see you soon. Thank you much. God bless. God bless.